A quick note before we begin. Though our podcast is focused on the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, we want to call attention to the Black injustice and police brutality that has been happening. In our description, we're linking resources for protests, donations, and more ways you can help stand in solidarity with the Black community. I'm Nancy. And I'm Catherine. This is Side Effects, a podcast that takes a deep, personal look into the sweeping effects of COVID-19. At this point, we've all seen stories on the front page covering the lives of doctors in overwhelmed hospitals or essential workers who have to go to work without the necessary protections. In many ways, COVID-19 has thrust individuals into the spotlight especially those whose roles in our community were previously unrecognized or unacknowledged. And while the media is focused on what their lives are like now, their current lives are hardly representative of their full story. So we wanted to get a better sense of who these individuals were before the pandemic and how their identities have shifted during these times. Since April, Catherine and I have been talking to six individuals at the center of this pandemic following their lives week to week as things unfold. On this show, we'll share with you their journey, starting from before this all began to present day. In this episode, we bring you stories from three of our guests who, since shelter in place, have found themselves with a lot more time than they expected. But who were they and where were they going before their plans were put on hold? Part one, Rudy. Rudy's a college senior who's graduating into a pandemic without a real commencement ceremony. For him, graduation was the bright light that motivated him through his last semester. With years of hard work behind him, it was his day to finally celebrate. In this story, we explore the significance of graduation for a first-generation college student through understanding Rudy's past. On March 19th, Governor Gavin Newsom closed down the state of California, and LeBron James broadcasted his first ever Instagram Live. At the beginning of this year, I never thought either of these events would happen, but times had changed. A week earlier, on March 11th, the NBA announced that it would suspend the rest of its season. A Utah Jazz player had tested positive for COVID-19. The first domino had fallen, and the rest were following at a breakneck speed. So the league shut down, like many entertainment entities did that week. And LeBron James, self-quarantining in his Los Angeles home, went on Instagram Live. This this is my first time ever being IG Live, by the way, y'all. So y'all in for a treat with the James gang. Did you just burp? It was sweet, lighthearted, and honestly just really enjoyable to watch. James reached fans all over the world, and in particular, one viewer streaming from the opposite end of California, Rudy Regalado, a graduating senior at Sacramento State University. I think that was like the first weekend of that shelter in place that I was home. 
I remember just laying on my bed so bored, like, and kind of, you know, still reflecting on what would I be doing if I was in Sacramento. So I was chilling, you know, on Instagram. And then, um, you know, LeBron James was on Instagram Live. I just tuned in and he was just himself in high spirits, um, talking smack about, you know, NBA and whatever's going on. So it lifted up my spirit. I remember that moment really specifically. days before he tuned in to watch LeBron James, Rudy received news that his commencement ceremony had been officially postponed. He expected as much, but as a first-generation college student, eagerly anticipating the day he would celebrate his accomplishment, the news was, nonetheless, a disappointing blow to him and his family. Man, I was so excited. For this last semester, that was literally my motivation. It's just a celebration in itself. I know for one, my mom would be there, my dad, my older sister, my other older sister, all her five kids, <laughs> um, my little brother, my little sister, everybody would be there. And I was literally inviting all my friends. So I would text my friends, be like, hey, I'm graduating May 15th. Come through. You can spend the night at my house. Like, I, I literally invited like 10, 15 people to spend the night at my house that weekend. Like, that's how excited I was. His excitement for his graduation didn't balloon overnight. The significance of this moment had been steadily growing for years. Because for Rudy, this journey didn't just start with himself. So I take a lot of pride knowing I am the first generation in my family, uh, just because my mom, my mom came straight from Mexico, straight from the trap, like straight from, straight from across the border. Like I seen where she came from. Um, and, and knowing what she built herself, it's like, I am a part of her legacy. Like, I give myself to her. Like His story really began years before he was born, when his mom decided to cross the border to America. She was born and raised in Tijuana, Mexico. She didn't even graduate high school, from what I believe. Uh, she had a, my older brother, I have an older brother in Mexico. And she had him very young. He's like 30 something. she's like 50 something. I don't even know how old she was, probably like 15, 16. So she had a child really early. So I know her life had to change. She had to work. And then I had two older sisters as well. Yeah, she had three kids very early. After moving across the border, she established herself in the new country with Rudy's father, settling down in Salinas Valley. And that's where he came in. I knew she had a struggle back in Mexico, working these stores. I think she worked at a shoe store or tortilla shop, something like that. But she's an excellent cook. So when she came here, she was a cook as well. But you know, being undocumented, there's certain rights that that undocumented people don't have. So that that came that comes in its own thing. But um, and I know it's been a struggle like for her and raising me because I know I wasn't easy on her like for my adolescent years and all that. She's a traditional Mexican mom, and I mean I don't blame her for being as like strict as she was, you know, but. But she, she was a good mom, is a good mom. Um, I like the way she raised me. And this kind of ties in with the work I do right now because, like, if I had an emotional problem or something that bothered me, she would know. And she would literally lock me in her room. We would be together in the room, and she would not let me out until I say what's on my mind. And this could be for hours, and that would suck. But it was ultimately for the betterment of me because now I feel like it's easier to talk about situations. And then I feel like that really translates into my work because I can really get something out of these kids. 
The Sac State organization Rudy currently works for is called Improve Your Tomorrow, or IYT for short. They focus on increasing the number of men of color that graduate college on time. In his role, Rudy mentors young men of color from middle school to high school, and then eventually to and through college. It's a job where you don't, I feel like you don't get instant gratification. So you're not, it's, we are reversing trauma and a lot of pain and systematic issues that have been going on for years, for centuries here in America. Um, so the instant gratification is very hard to come by. So you got to be really strong when it comes to this. And what I love about it is just, it's just the energy. I feel that, I know for myself, uh, growing up, I made a lot of mistakes. Um, could have easily went down a different path. Growing up, going through all the experiences of learning and painfully traversing what is right and what is wrong. Really beginning to understand who you are. It's never easy. We asked Rudy if there was a particular moment where he started shifting his mindset and coming into the person he is today. I, f- I feel like maybe it came down in high school. Um, I was kind of going through sadness because of my parents splitting up and my mom having to work and provide for, you know, for me. And, you know, I couldn't find the answers of what I was looking for at home. You know, my mom was always working. So, you know, I, I turned to the streets and that's kind of where I learned a lot of things from. Um, I did used to smoke a lot of weed and I really use that as an escape, you know, like a coping mechanism. For me, it just wasn't working because I was using that to escape from my real problems, like avoiding school or avoiding, you know, certain conversations I needed to have with certain people. And it just kind of like distorted the way I think. And, but, you know, but I learned from that. And it was my best friend who I consider an older brother, like a mentor, his name was Christian, really, I feel guided me in the right direction and just kind of taught me all kinds of cool things. Like, I don't know, how to talk to girls, how to have confidence, how to, you know, seek opportunity. He really taught me a lot of different things. He, he played a big role in my life. And I felt that, I felt that I had to do that for other, other people. I have a little brother too, but when I come to Sex Day, I don't see him every day. So I, in my head, I'm just like, how can I give back? When Rudy met Christian, he finally found the father figure that was missing in his life. He found someone who could guide, inspire, and encourage him through all the highs and lows and growing pains. My dad wasn't really there for me to kind of give me that role model that I needed back then. Like, you can achieve this if you do this, this, and this. Like, that guiding voice, I didn't have that. So I really had to learn a lot of things on my own. I've been through a lot of pain, probably self-inflicted pain, um, just because of things I made a mistake in, because I had no idea, like, this is how it was supposed to be done or anything. So kind of growing up, I really had a search. Like, how can I get rid of this trauma? How can I rid myself from this pain? How can I live a better life? Not for me, but for my family too. But that's the thing though. I went searching for answers for myself. But what I realized is what happens to myself happens to the people around me too. You know, I want to serve as that, that person who served me when I was younger. And that's kind of why I do what I do, you know? And the only way I can really get better is if I take care of myself and take care of others. That's, that's what I truly believe. So it was somewhere along high school where I learned, like, you know what, I got to step it up. Like, I can't, I just really had to choose, like, which path of life I want to take. 
It's easy to continue the pattern of anger, pain, and trauma, but to intentionally choose to break away from that cycle and then go the extra step and help those who are in similar situations, that is something that requires tremendous strength. So we actually had a psychologist the other day. Something that stood out to me, what she said is, man, well, I mean, just going back, it's, it's, it's very broad because to start out broadly, like, first of all, I mean, damn, this country was, I mean, it was built off racism. Um, the systematic structures were already there, and we were just born into them. It's a race, and people were born ahead, and we're born the way that we're born. You know, primarily people of color have it worse, right? Fewer resources, fewer money, assets, education, role models in their life. We got guns. We got liquor stores on the corners. We got rap music telling us to behave certain ways, and it's like, where are they supposed to turn to, right? So, and then going back to that workshop, she said, oftentimes when you grow through pain and trauma, you either become a product of every environment or you become the antithesis of that, you know? So, you know, so, so uh, you know, I feel like it's more common to become a product of it, but I'm well aware of the success stories and the, and the, the great things that people can amount to, especially when their backs have been against the wall their whole life. And I feel like that's kind of where I came from. I was, I was a, pro- a product, but I didn't, you know, I didn't project none of that pain and all that onto other people. Like, that's not my, that's not my goal. I don't want to be like that. I want to be, you know, better for everybody else, for myself, first and foremost. And what IYT is like, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get people like myself to help guide the youth who have been misguided their whole life or don't have anybody to turn to or, you know, have been dealing with pain and trauma, they just simply need someone to listen or someone to believe in them, you know? And I just think this connects to my purpose because I feel good every time I do it. I feel good every time I, I, I deal with a young man who's been through similar steps as me or just things like that, you know? Getting his job at IYT was one of Rudy's proudest accomplishments in 2019. And at the beginning of 2020, He was ready to take everything a step further. He was riding the momentum, looking forward to graduation, and planning to work at a construction company after finishing school to help his family out of debt. That's how I envisioned it at first. My birthday is literally on January 3rd. So, okay, I'm like, okay, new age. I just turned 23. It's it's about to be great. Um, And then Kobe Bryant passed away. And I was like, damn, like this, okay, this year could be really years messed up you know hopefully you know hopefully things get better and then this came and it's like wow like all the plans I had to celebrate with my family the accomplishment of graduating um, undergrad. In February as the pandemic was creeping into America and various other countries Rudy was still in Sacramento about halfway through his last semester of college. So me and my roommate were just watching CNN like bro like what's gonna happen like we had to have those conversations is this going to be here? Of course, there's always that fear, like, am I going to get it? Is my family going to get it? So that definitely gets you thinking. Um, so my mental state, my emotional state, um, it's, it's kind of hard to describe, but like I said, I just got a sense of panic, maybe a little anxiety. So like, how is this whole school thing going to work out? How's my work thing going to come out? Like my work that I do? How's everything going to play out? I have no idea. Just this sense of uncertainty. 
you know, and it may even still feel this till today. That was Rudy Regalado, who just graduated college. He's still got a lot he wants to figure out, including finding the career and work that he wants to dedicate himself to. And for now, he's got some time to figure out his options. Still, for those who are further along in their careers, getting a chance to breathe and take a step back allows you to rediscover why you wanted to pursue something in the first place. And oftentimes, work can be engulfing, so much so that you lose sight of what you wanted to accomplish when starting out. Stay tuned as we talk to Jenny about her journey in medicine and what drives her practice in part two. On one hand, I think people who are in quarantine might recognize this pattern where you have some days where you feel utterly, you know, untethered and kind of lost and cut off from your routines, cut off from your social networks, cut off from your communities and normal routine. Uh, and it feels very surreal and alienating and odd. And then there will be certain days in the quarantine where you're very, I'll say, where I'm very grateful for my time and I feel like I wake up and I feel purpose and I get to use my time in the way that I want to. And I'm like, wow, I figured out quarantine. This is actually a blessing. And then the next day totally turns it around and I feel very upset and unwell. Jenny Tsai is a first-year emergency medicine resident in Connecticut. When the coronavirus hit, she was in the middle of a rotation, surrounded by sick patients and working constantly throughout a changing environment of new protocols, new research on treatments, and a never-ending barrage of new information to process every day. And then that rotation ended, and I was scheduled for a sort of outside rotation where we focus on obstetrics and EMS care, so emergency medical systems care. Um, And because of COVID, those two were canceled temporarily. So I was sort of tasked to stay at home and be a backup call. So if anybody in my department needed to, to leave for possible illness, family issues, whatever it may be, um, I would be called into the apartment. You know, I have one hour to get there. Since then, life has looked very different for her. She dove back into her writing, something she hasn't been able to focus on since she's been in residency. As both a student of medicine and a writer, Jenny advocates for the disparities that arise in practicing medicine, things like race, gender, sexuality, that are often invisible when you step into a hospital or a doctor's office. And so for that, to me, was a huge breath of fresh air and a, a huge sort of... Um, getting to return to something that feels like a huge part of my well-being and a huge part of my reason for being in medicine um, and also kind of reawakening parts of my brain that I really missed. I, I missed writing. I missed reading. I missed getting to think about history and the ways it affects the way we practice medicine and the way that medicine is so constructed and engineered by power structures that 
every single one of our institutions are vulnerable to. So coming back to that has been really kind and very, very different from what my life looked like a month ago. When Jenny entered undergrad, she had her sights set on studying neuroscience. Her program at Brown promised her a spot in their medical school as soon as she graduated and provided her with plenty of electives, which she used to look into ethnic studies. It felt like another dimension had had come up. The the way that was, you know, I kind of think about it is um, you know, like old movies where there's a spy trying to steal like an egg or a painting in a museum, but they're the they're like lasers that you have to move through, and they have like a spray. Um, you can't see the lasers unless you like spray them. It felt like that spray, like my teachers gave me. The spray where all of a sudden I could see all of these lasers across the world I was living that I couldn't see before. In her undergrad, she was expected to think critically about the world and the nature of healthcare. How do power structures manifest themselves in healthcare? And what can be done to tear them down? Then she went to medical school and everything snapped back. Before, she was given the tools to apply the lessons from the classroom into her everyday life. But now, she was expected to stick to regurgitating facts for a grade. It was awful. It was like, you know, all the things that I just said about learning to think for myself for the first time, being asked to think critically, thinking through history, thinking about, well, who writes history? How do we kind of tear out the seams and figure out how power gets into history and how we understand certain things? It was the total opposite of that. It was back to, here are a thousand things to learn, memorize them all in three weeks, and I expect you to regurgitate them to me in exact form. No real mentions about context, no real digestion or, or understanding or discussion about how all of these same powers are enmeshed in medicine and continue to operate to marginalize and perpetuate inequity through every system. You know, our education, our research, our clinical diagnosis, our treatment algorithms, our entire payment system, everything. But we never talked about it. And it was really disheartening and it was really shocking. In our clinical work, however, Jenny has found ways to keep implementing good practices that are conscious of many structures that work against minorities and the disenfranchised. This meant being more transparent with her diagnosis, being compassionate with her patients, and not limiting them to just their charts. I made a concerted effort to say, well, if I can't be writing and I can't be researching or teaching right now, I want to make it a priority of my own practice that I'm trying to translate those things that I believe into really really compassionate patient care to people who are homeless, who are of color, who face violence, who are injured, who are lonely, who are depressed, who are dependent on substances, who don't have the resources or access to resources necessary to be healthy. How do I take the information that I learn and believe in to be a kinder and better doctor to these people? That compassion extends to herself and her friends as well. As medical students, Burnout is a common phenomenon in their profession. That's when medical professionals face exhaustion, depression, and a lack of motivation from taking care of patients all day and dealing with tragedy, which is even more prevalent nowadays. 
some studies indicate that over half of medical professionals struggle with burnout, and one in three residents experience suicidal thoughts. Jenny points to a troubling statistic that shows at least one doctor dies by suicide every day. There were colleagues, friends of friends, who had classmates who had committed suicide. These weren't people that were totally abstract. These were people that I could have met at a party when I visited my friend. Hearing that every year, 400 medical trainees commit suicide, you know, a full two classes, a full physician per day. And then hearing things like that more and more in this pandemic, I think are, are hard to ignore. And kind of everywhere that I looked, people were just feeling really, really low. And people were feeling very, very isolated and burned out and lacking purpose, which is how I had felt at times during my medical training and certainly something that we had talked about throughout our medical training um, and how important it was to be able to lean on each other and have community in a way that's really irreplaceable. As the pandemic spreads and it becomes harder and harder to find ways to bring people together, Jenny is still thinking positively. Three years ago, when Jenny and her friends hit a dark place in their education, they got together to eat ice cream, put on face masks, and talk about all the stresses that come with being med students. Now no longer able to gather that same way, Jenny and her peers need to adapt. I think right now, the examples that come to mind really is watching communities come together, even if it's on Zoom. The world as we know it has changed, right? Things have shut down. Things have totally kind of deconstructed themselves for the sake of this emergency. And what it tells kind of all of us is that all these things that people said were impossible are not impossible at all because they're happening now. Um, And the ways that normalcy has been torn down shows us that it was never permanent, that it was never given, that it was never unchangeable. So far, we've talked a lot about transitions, moving, and reconsidering. But how about sticking around, staying? Our next guest shares his story on why he stayed at the same company for 25 years. Stick around for part three, Colin. The average person will spend 90,000 hours at work over a lifetime. For Colin Wright, most of those hours have been with Enterprise Holdings, the car rental company where he's worked for the past 25 years. It was a job that in many ways was meant to be. I was born in Orlando um, and was raised in Southeast Tennessee, uh, uh, just outside of Chattanooga. I went to school there and graduated there. I got the gig up here. I was at a company in Chattanooga. It was an insurance company. They were starting to have some challenges and I started looking for a gig and uh, found 
a guy that worked at the same company I just left. And he, uh, he and I hit it off. We had a, a three hour session and it's like we were sons of different mothers. It was, it was astonishing. Uh, we had gone through the same technical paths in our careers. We had done a lot of things. And so in 1995, I picked up everything and moved to St. Louis. I'd never lived in St. Louis, uh, never lived in Missouri, frankly. That was when he started his career at Enterprise. St. Louis was new to him, but he wasn't a stranger there for long. He really hit it off with the company, like really hit it off. I met my wife at work, uh, which was kind of cool. So, uh, so Becky and I met there in uh, uh, 97 and got married in 99. I was brought to St. Louis to do uh, work with our new desktop systems. This was 1995, so it wasn't like it is today where everybody's got a you know, PC on their desk or laptop. Uh, there were few and far between, uh, even in a corporate environment like that. Becky has a teaching background and ended up going into um, adult training with a technical training company here and eventually came to Enterprise about six weeks before me and was a member of the help desk. So essentially folks would have a problem using uh, uh, an application and she would show them how to do it. And that's, that's how we met. We were on the same floor in the same building. When we got married, it was, it was a huge company thing. We had 175 people, most of them were people from work. And I can remember somebody saying, that they knew we were going to get married before we knew we were going to get married, that it was just that obvious. That was four years after he joined the company. He found his family and from there settled into life in St. Louis. St. Louis was not even on my radar for places to go. Uh, it's been an awesome experience. I've been here uh, a little over 25 years and it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a nice place. He talked to us about all of the activities he's become involved in. There's the Colon Alliance, a network that matches colon cancer survivors to those who are currently dealing with the cancer and need someone to talk to. He's also part of the supporters group for the local soccer club and traveled with the team when they played in the Big Cup in Atlanta. His home office walls are decorated with triathlon medals and scarves emblazoned with the names of local soccer clubs as well as artifacts from all the activities and communities he's been a part of. And then there's the Jeep community. We're the largest um, paid Jeep club in uh, the United States. So it's a huge number of people. We've got 600, 700 paid members, something like that. Um, and our Facebook page has 11,000 people on it. It's, it's really like a family and we call it our Jeep family. Um, I enjoy being out on the trails out in the woods it's out where it's sunshiny sometimes it's rainy you've got problems to solve it's it's geometry of how do you get up a rock it's uh, uh, a little bit of physics about how big a splash you can make through a mud puddle I'm not saying I've ever done that but uh, <laughs> but it's it's just an awful lot of fun and a great great collection of folks and we do a ton of fundraisers for uh, first responders who've fallen in line of duty things like that so a lot of our events we do a raffle and so all the proceeds from that go to a veterans rehabilitation center, probably an hour, I guess, or an hour and a half south of here. And basically this center doesn't charge veterans anything and takes them out and lets them go four-wheeling, lets them do a lot of things that they can't do because they're physically incapable. And so it, it's really near and dear to us. And so that's a big part of what, what we do as a, as a Jeep community is try to give back. 
I guess it comes as no surprise that someone who's worked 25 years for a car rental company is also incredibly into cars. So I have a YouTube channel. So the name of my Jeep is Dirty Paws because it gets muddy. And so um, I've done some videos out there uh, that I've titled Dirty Paws Diaries. There's a great video of my mom and I at Talladega Super Speedway ten, uh, nine years ago this month. Um, they had a benefit down there for uh, tornado victims in Northern Alabama and for a donation. And I don't remember how much the donation was. You could go take your vehicle on the Talladega Super Speedway track. So we set cameras up all over the Jeep I owned at the time. It had cameras over top and dash cams and the whole nine yards. And we did four laps at Talladega at about 120 miles an hour in a Jeep. Um, my mother was, they've got a little grab bar down there. My mother was sit behind the grab bar right behind the dash where she could almost not see. And there's some great video uh, on, on my channel about that. In our first chat with Colin, it became obvious just how much he cared about the communities he was a part of and about giving back to others through those communities. In his own words, he's the guy who's known for bear hugs and bourbon. Being a part of something, sharing his hobbies, supporting others, it's what gives him life, both outside of work and at Enterprise. Enterprise has been kind of our family for, for a long time. It was an awful lot of fun. Um, and it was just an awesome set of folks. Again, I, I kind of keep harping on this family thing. I, I don't know how it is that I seem to gravitate to those kinds of organizations and groups and things, but that seems to be the way that that works. And this was like family. It really was. And so it was, uh, it was, it was interesting, a great collection of folks from somebody who was there, who uh, was a manager for the first time, somebody who'd been with the company almost as long as I had uh, other folks that were relatively new to the company, folks that were coming out of one, uh, uh, another technical discipline into security. And so that, that whole thing about mentoring those folks and trying to help them uh, grow and, and, and rise in their careers and stretch and learn new things, that was great. And I loved doing that. When COVID first started, perhaps one of the earliest industries to feel its effects was the travel industry. As of late April, Companies like Hertz have announced plans to lay off 10,000 of its almost 30,000 North American employees. Hertz and Avis have lost more than half their stock value within a month. But back in January and February, things were still uncertain and there was hope. I can remember seeing just very early discussions about, about this, this, uh, this virus that was uh, being seen in Wuhan especially in January, it didn't make me think too hard about it. You know, the economy was doing well, the job was going well. Um, it, it, there wasn't really any telltales out there that indicated that this was going to be a big event for the U.S., I think. Of course, the, the stock markets in you know, late February were at their highest record levels, and so everything looked great with the world. Most of us had been through the uh, economic downturn in 2008-2009, um, and we, as a company, survived that, and all of us had survived that. And we thought this, I think, would be the same, and it's not. It's very, very different. He talked about how he'd gotten through the 2008 financial crisis alongside his company and colleagues. And making it through that crisis helped him see Enterprise as even more of a family. 
We had people that were deeply concerned for each other, walking to people's desks, seeing if they were still there, seeing if they needed anything, seeing how they were handling maybe the, uh, the impact of the person in the cube next to them being gone. Um, it was, it, to, to me, a supportive moment about, about what, this, this sort of family uh, feel that you had with the company and with the folks that, that worked there, uh, always taking care of each other, always trying to support each other, and trying to make sure that folks were getting through moment to moment, day to day, week to week, uh, and, and frankly being supported in the way that a, that a family would support somebody. And I can remember a guy coming up to me you know, he said to me, I, man, I'm, I'm so glad to see you, that you're still here. And that was particularly poignant to me. And I think was very indicative of the way this sort of tight knit family uh, felt and operated about each other. Having gone through the 0809 crisis where things were bad, it didn't happen this fast. And so this, this crazy speed that everything started happening was, uh, was astonishing. Even at that time, even with the markets going crazy, we still didn't have the sense, at least in my industry, we didn't have the sense that we were going to be impacted like that until people stopped flying, stopped traveling. That's when it all got really, really real uh, for, for us. Because at that point, suddenly we're not renting cars. And if we're not renting cars, that's a problem. And so that, that's, that's really when the, the big realization came uh, for us was probably, you know, middle of March, that kind of time frame. That's Colin Wright. He's been at Enterprise for 25 years. But since the pandemic hit, he's unfortunately had to start considering other options. The next time we talk to him, we'll explore his experience parting with his job and what that means for him. If you enjoyed this week's episode, be sure to subscribe and give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We really appreciate the support. Side Effects is produced by Catherine and Nancy Shu, along with Joshua Chan, Sam Yellowhorse Kessler, Jason Lee, Miranda Pan, and Amy Shen. Special thanks to Taracola for all your help and support. To stay updated on our show, make sure to subscribe and follow us at Side Effects Pod. That's at S I D E E F F E C T S P O D on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Stay safe and healthy, and we'll see you next Monday. Thank you.